If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Find your way to Acts chapter 12. We're going to jump right into our resurgent series, which we've been doing actually started in September. We're making our way through the book of Acts and uh, asking the question, if this is what it looked like for them 2,000 years ago, what is a modern day reflection of what God wants the church to look like today? And so we've been obviously being challenged and learning a lot of things, experiencing God's presence and his power. And so this morning we're going to look at Acts chapter 12 in a pretty incredible story that we're going to read through and, and digest what God's saying to us. Um, but before we jump into that, th this morning what we're, what we're looking at is, and what we're, we're seeking to understand is that God really does the impossible. He takes what we think is impossible and he makes it possible. So as we walk through this, I know that sometimes you hear that and you're like, oh, okay, you're just going to whip up some emotion and try to get us to believe something that's never really going to happen. And that's our pessimistic human side that always kicks in, that God always has to push in on because we live in a world where we tend to be more on the pessimistic side than we have the hopeful side that God is going to break through. And God wants to change that because what we're reading from the 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 pages of scripture from the church 2,000 years ago is that they, they expected that God was going to show up. They expected that God was going to do miraculous things. That's why when we go, if you go through all 28 chapters of the book, at, book of Acts, you'll see that, that prayer is mentioned 31 times, more than once a chapter. There's a reason for that, because the church 2,000 years ago believed when they prayed that God would actually do something. And when we, we, when we get to that place where we don't really believe, we stop praying. We stop asking God. We stop leaning into what God may be doing, wanting to do in our lives. And so we need a reminder. And so this morning as we get to Acts chapter 12, it's almost like God's put it, pulling out the, you know, the, the AED and giving us a shock, of a jolt of reminder like, hey, I'm a God who still does the impossible. In fact, so some of you probably know this because you've been a part of this church for a while. But many of you maybe don't even know that you're sitting in something that was at one point an impossibility for our church. You're sitting in a building that, that according to human standards, we have no business to be here. Um, just a quick reminder for those of you who are part of our history, maybe for those who haven't, uh, just to kind of know where, what you're sitting in. Long story short, a uh, number of years ago when we were in a building over on Shasta, um, that building was killing us, literally. It was taking us right into the ground. Uh, between the lease payment and the utilities and the maintenance, it was costing us $30,000 a month just to break even in the building, and we didn't own it. And so we knew, because of where the church was at, we are going to have to make a move, so the only option we thought was to find another smaller space that we could once again lease. And so that's what we were looking for until our realtor, realtor came along, which, by the way, he's not a follower of Jesus, but he had more faith than I did, I'll just tell you that. Because when he came upon this building and he saw that it had a tenant on that side, and if you buy the whole building, you get the income from the tenant, and he ran the numbers, he goes, this is a no-brainer you got to buy this building. And I looked, his name is Doug Shaw. I said, Doug, we don't have any money. He goes, well, you got to find some money. you got to do it because this is a great deal. And so, so I contacted our denomination, and I said, we would like to move forward in buying a building. And they kind of like, well, you don't have any money. I'm like, well, I know we don't have any money. And so, and so we, we believed that God was moving us this direction. So we took one step at a time, and we started raising money. And so we, we were about halfway through the process. Many of you remember this. And I was on the phone with someone from our denomination because we were, as we were walking through this, they were financing things, and we, so everything ran through our denomination. And so they were looking at the numbers of where we currently were with our fundraising, and they, this is what they said. I remember they said, listen, you're going to have to come up with $135,000 in the next two weeks or you're done. And we had already raised quite a bit of money. I felt like we had given as much as we could give. And they said, no, in order to get to where you need to be, this is how much you need. I remember I hung up the phone. I remember sitting in my office over at Shasta, and I just thought, God, we're done. There's just no way. I mean, you've, you've taken us to the end of this journey, and this is the way it's going to end. And I actually said the words, like, that's impossible. But then I 
connected with all of our leaders, and then I, uh, next Sunday I shared, shared with the congregation, I said, we're going to pray and we're going to believe that God's going to do something in the next two weeks because he's going to keep moving. And I, I tell you, it is a miracle. A hun- over $135,000 came in in two weeks. Inside the church, outside the church, from people who didn't even know we were needing it as a church, God just provided. And it kept this process going. And now, most of you know, this is the crazy thing. We now own a building which costs us $3,000 a month out of our budget as opposed to leasing a building that was bleeding us at thirty grand a month. That's God's math. That's the impossible becoming possible. Not because we're smart leaders or good stewards, although we strive to be. It's a God thing. And so for us as a church, we of all people should be reminded that God does the impossible. So when we get to this passage this morning, I mean, we're reminded of it, what we're going to read. and It all hinges on one key verse, which is verse 5, which uses this one word, which really is the key. And we'll read it in just a moment. Is that the church earnestly prayed. That's what their response was to an impossible situation. And so what I want to do is we walk through this passage. We're just going to kind of take a chunk at a time and look at this journey. This is, this is a story that maybe if you've been in church, you're familiar with. And it's, it's Peter is put in prison. And what is the response of the church when... One of their leaders is put in prison. So remember, if you were here last week, we went through Acts 11. We talked about Antioch Church. My dad was here, and he talked about what it looks like. It was pretty ex- exciting to see a lot of the things that were reflected in Antioch Church 2,000 years ago are happening among us today, which is awesome. But then what happens is things are going great, and then you hit chapter 12, and it feels like the wheels fall off. So I want to walk to four things that it's when the impossible becomes possible. When these things occur, the first one is this. We actually pray impossibly. We pray impossibly. It just doesn't make sense to pray, but we do because we believe God does want to do something. Listen to how the wheels come off in the first four verses of Acts chapter 12. Because about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. We'll stop there. So I want you just to, to picture this for a moment. So things are going great. The gospel has reached outside the Jewish community, and now Gentiles are being saved. God's doing these great things. And then all of a sudden, one of your primary leaders in James is arrested, and he's killed. And then Herod, in his wickedness, thinks, man, look at the popularity this is giving me amongst the Jews. Now I'm going to grab Peter, and I'm going to do the same thing to him because I'll even be more popular. So can you imagine what it would feel like to be there 2,000 years ago? What would it feel like to see your leaders are getting picked off one by one, and now you feel like you need to go in hiding? There's this sense like, we're done. There's no way forward. I mean, Herod is in charge. He has all authority and all power. He could do whatever he wants to do. And so now he's just going to start picking us off one by one before there will be none of us left. And this whole great ride that we've been on with Jesus will be over. There had to be, feel, feel some of that because... They, but they, they responded differently than we respond to persecution. One of the things I've noticed when in the church, at least in the U.S., when we, when we get pushed back in our culture, when something happens that is against what our beliefs, beliefs are, or Christianity gets a bad name, or somebody gets persecuted, you know what, no, no offense to any churches or even to us, but you know our default is never prayer. It's not. You know what it is? Protest. It's not fair. This is America. It's a free country shouldn't have to put up with this but the last thing we think about to do is maybe we should pray maybe we should pray that god would break through in the midst of persecution because that's what they did two thousand years ago and sometimes we don't realize that things actually occur not just because they just happen but because somebody 
somewhere along the line decided to pray for something that was impossible to become uh, to be impossible. That's what happens. So here's an example. Um, we've had a little rain lately, haven't we? Okay. So in in we're we're obviously doing really well as far as this season is, is far, goes as far as rain. So typically at this time of year we are normally if a normal year which we haven't had in a long time a normal year in Simi Valley area is around at this time of year about eight or nine inches of rain. Okay. Uh, last year at this time we were at just over two inches of rain. Currently we're over 15 inches of rain for this time of year. But also, I want to show you something that's more important than that. I want you to take a look at this, this picture. This is our state. Back in 2015, 71% of our state was under what was called extreme or severe drought, which was critical. Um, because we live down more than Southern California, many don't know this. You know, over the last five years, 40,000 farm workers have been laid off because of the lack of water in our state. That hits home for people. Now I want you, to, as of last Thursday, look at the 2019 picture. So 71% was under extreme or severe, and now today actually 0% is under extreme. It's the yellow is what's called abnormal, and then there's one tiny little orange up at the beginning. And right now, by the way, Northern California is getting hammered again. Here's the reality. By the end of this rainy season, it's a very strong possibility that the state of California will have zero drought left in it. But I want you to want to tell you why that happened. It's not just weather patterns. No meteorologist is going to come up and explain. This is just the way it is. It's global warming, whatever. It's God. I'll tell you why I know it's God. Over the last five years, I had a number of my friends who passed through throughout the state of California tell me, we have made a concerted effort to pray for rain ongoingly in our state. Thousands of people have been praying for the last five years that we would get out of drought, and now look what's happening. That is not a coincidence. That is the church praying that God would break through. This, this is similar to, if you read through the book of, of uh, it's referenced in the book of James, where James references, remember Elijah prayed for rain, and, uh, prayed and no rain came, and then he prayed for rain and rain came. Guess who's in charge of the rain? God is. So God does the impossible, but I'll be the first to confess, I never even thought much about praying for rain. I just was complaining it was too dry, right? You like me? I know when we live in Simi Valley and it's like 95 on, on Christmas Day and the wind's blowing, you're like, where's the rain? As opposed to, God, maybe I should get on my knees and pray that you'll bring rain. This is a God thing. This is the way God works. When we think that we're facing something impossible, we are to pray impossibly. That's what they did. Now look at verse 5 because this is where, this is the key verse, the hinge kind of in the whole passage. They prayed intensely. Verse 5 says this. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now that word earnest is the key word. It has a lot to it, but it has to do with the intensity of their prayers. They weren't just praying casually. They were praying intensely because they knew that their life was on the line. Peter's life was on the line. So they prayed intensely. In fact, the very word earnest is the same exact word that is used to describe Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's praying to the Father before he goes to the cross. If you know that you're facing death in just moments or the next day, do you think it changes the way you pray? It better. But this is the very thing that the way Jesus prayed. Can you imagine Jesus in, remember, fully God and fully man, but fully in his humanity understood the pain and the suffering he was going to go through when he went to the cross. So listen to what it says in Luke chapter 22, verses 41 to 44. It says, and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. 
And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. It's that same word. And he sweat blood, or he, uh, he sweat because like uh, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. There's this burden that Jesus feels. It's the same burden that the church feels for Peter. They're praying earnestly. When was the last time we prayed earnestly? When was the last time you prayed to the point of sweating? That literally, it, 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 there was a physical reality of how intense you were in praying for something. That's what they were doing. Why? Because they believed that God could break through. Now, I'll be honest with you. I, I have not been in a prayer gathering in my lifetime within the borders of the United States that I could say would, 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 would reflect what they were doing in this passage. We pray, but I don't think we pray intensely. Because we, we, someone was talking to me between services, and I agree. They said, we're just too comfortable. And we're like, well, I'm not comfortable. Well, if, if we were in other parts of the world, we'd realize what discomfort's like. I think the only time I've ever been in a prayer gathering where I'd say would, would be similar to something like this that I watched people pray earnestly was in China. And I mean, I'll tell you, those people, I was in a room full of 140 leaders, and I've never seen a group of people pray so intensely in my life. You know, when we pray, we all bow our heads and we wait for one person to pray. And if you're in a group of people, that awkward moment, like, who's going to pray? I don't want to pray. Anybody know what I'm talking about? In China, when you say, let's pray, the room gets loud. People are crying out to God. People are on their faces. People are sobbing. Why? Because for them, they've lived in a society that has marginalized them and put some of them to death and taken everything, which, by the way, pray for China, because the persecution is right through the roof again the last couple of years. It's bad. But you know what the church leaders are saying in China right now? None of them are like, oh, it's not fair. Why is God doing this to us? You know what most of the church leaders in China are saying right now? We're glad for the persecution because we need it because we've gotten too soft. And so they pray earnestly for God to break through. Now, your life may not be on the line tomorrow, but you know what? Somebody's salvation is. Our city is. What God wants to do is. So we should pray with that level of intensity that we want God to break through. We want to see what is impossible become possible because God shows up and does what only God can do. Third thing, look at verses 6 through 11. It says, this tells us again, going along the lines of this one word, the word earnest, they prayed persistently. So let me go on, verse 6 through 11. So it says, now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping. Remember, the church is praying at this very moment. Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door, uh, before the door were gu guarding, excuse me, were guarding the prison. So I just want to pause for a moment. What is Peter doing when his life is on the line the next day? He's sleeping. Uh, I wouldn't be sleeping. Would you be sleeping? I'd be a nervous wreck. I wish I could say I'd be super spiritual, I'd be on my face praying before God, but he's sleeping. Why? Because there's something in him that knows that God is in control. And then going on, Verse 7, and behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and the light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and he followed him, and he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed by the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them in its own, on its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. Verse 11, Peter uh, came to himself, and he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Remember, at the same time, the church is praying. 
They're praying what? Persistently. The word in the construction in this passage in verse 5, the, the way the verse is constructed, the word earnestly literally means to pray persistently, to not give up, unceasingly. So they keep praying, they keep praying. They're pr in fact, from what we can pick up, they're praying all night long. They're praying because they, they're believing they're going to pray until they get an answer. Now, in our, for us, the struggle is when we pray for an hour, like, whew, that was the longest I've ever prayed in one time, right? Oh, I guess you guys are more spiritual. You're, you're at the five-hour. I'm the one-hour mark, okay? But we struggle, but they're praying what? They're persistent. And not only, not only in, this, in this passage persistently time-wise within what's going on with what's, what's going on with Peter in prison, but they, as we know, that, that prayer is laced throughout the book of Acts. They're always praying continually praying, not giving up in prayer. They're being persistent constantly because they believe that God is going to break through. I'll be the first to admit, I struggle with praying persistently. I can pray in moments. I can pray in seasons, but I don't pray very well over a long period of time because I give up. Anybody ever admit you do that too? That we do, we, we have this challenge because we, we know that we should be praying, but, but somehow we, we just don't. So I'll tell you, this is what I've done because I know I have a tendency to pray for certain things when they're critical, but I kind of lose uh, focus on what's really going on, and so I'll just kind of lay those to the wayside, and before you know it, my, my prayer life is just littered with these unanswered prayers because I haven't been comp consistent, so I have found the answer to my persistency. It's called the iPhone. This is really spiritual moment, okay? So anybody heard of the app Reminders? If you don't have an iPhone, you have something like that if you have a smartphone. It's for people who forget things. That's why it's called Reminders, right? I have a reminder on my phone that has been on my phone for the past four years. And it goes off every Thursday at 10 a.m. And the reason it goes off is because there's four people in particular that I've been praying for. Two of them don't know Jesus. Others are going through some different things in their life, and they've been going through them for a very long time. And so four years ago, I said, I, I've got to pray for these people, but I can't forget. I use reminders for everything. And so what I've been doing is I'm praying, and the two that don't know Jesus... One of them, she stepped this last year a little closer to Jesus. She's not quite there yet, but I keep praying for her. So every Thursday, 10 a.m., no matter where I am, that, that goes off. I don't even have to look at my phone or my computer. I know what that means. There's four people I should have to pray. So I will stop whatever I'm doing, and I will pray for God to break through. And I'm going to pray for those four people until I see answers to all four of them. It may not take four years. It may take 10 years. It may take 20 years. It may take 30 years. It may take to the end of my lifetime. But I'm reminded by using a simple thing of technology to say, listen, keep praying. We could cheat. They didn't have this cheat. They didn't have a phone. But if you're like me and you struggle to pray consistently, then use something that reminds you to pray. Keep praying. Keep praying. Because the next thing I'll, I'll mention, there's something that happens when we realize that God actually answers, I think, more prayers than we realize. The fourth thing, pray expectantly. Pray expectantly. So verse 12. 12 to 15. So this is where the only thing where I can kind of fault the, the church when they're praying is that they're praying so intensely and they're praying so persistently that when God actually answers their prayer, I don't know if they were expectant. <laughs> they should have been. Listen to what happens. Verse 12, it says, when he realized this, Peter, he went to the house of Mary and the mother of John, whose, uh, whose uh, other name was Mark, where we were there with many gathered and we were praying and when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer, recognizing Peter's voice. In her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. 
but she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, or they kept saying, it is his angel. So they're, they're so intently praying that they've forgotten that what they're really praying for is standing at the front door. And there's this, this side of prayer that you and I actually, I think sometimes we become like that church where we, we pray, but we really don't expect God's going to show up. And one of those things to, to combat that in my life, I've discovered that when I actually write down what I'm praying for, I discover that God answers a lot more of my prayers than I thought he did. Because most of us, if we're honest, we think that the majority of times God doesn't answer prayer. And actually, I found the opposite. He actually answers our prayers the majority of times. And this is how I know. So probably a couple years ago, more than just using my phone as a reminder, one of the things that I decided to do is that, that about once or once a month, maybe every, every other month, I will sit down an extended period of time. I will pray, and I'll just ask God to lay out a prayer list in front of me, and I'll just start writing those things down. And so then during the weeks, I'll, when I'm having devotions, I'll go back to my journal, and I'll read back to myself the things that I'm praying for. And I did that on purpose because I realized that if I don't write down what I'm praying for in that moment is that I'm going to forget if God has actually answered it. So periodically, I will go back into my journal and I'll go back over a year, and I did this recently, just to go through all of the lists that I had laid out to see where God has answered. It didn't run like exact numbers, but this last year was in the neighborhood of about 50 to 60% that I could verify God answered that prayer. Now, I'm not saying he didn't answer the other 30 or 40%. I just haven't seen it yet. But here, over the last year, these are things I've been praying for. I'm not going to mention people's names because there are some of them are probably here today. But I've been praying for these things, and this is the things that God has answered that I've been praying for over the last year. I've prayed for people to be healed, and they've been healed. I've prayed for people to be saved, and they've been saved. I've prayed for financial provision, and God has poured out his blessing on people. I've prayed for housing provision, and God has provided that. I've prayed for relational breakthrough, and God has done that. I've prayed for academic success, and God has done that. Those are all verifiable things that God has done in the last year because I just put them in my journal, and I kept going back to them, and God has answered them. And you know what's exciting when I make a list now? I expect there's going to be a day I go back and check that list and go, yep, 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 yep. God did all of those. So we pray what this, this expectation. Otherwise, what in the world are we doing? If we don't expect God to answer, then we, we're foolish. But if we're expecting that God's actually going to break through, God's actually going to answer our prayers, then we pray differently. Which leads to the next three things I want to highlight going on in the passage is that impossible prayers produce something, and they're highlighted in this passage. What is the reaction or the response when God does the impossible? The first thing, look at verse 16, is this thing called amazement. When God actually does something that we think is impossible, the outcome for us is that our jaw hits the floor. We're astounded, amazed. Verse 16, but Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him, and they were, depending on what translation you have, amazed, astounded, shocked, overwhelmed. That was, they couldn't believe it because God had taken what was impossible made it possible. This is a point of conviction in my own life. As I was preparing for the message this week and started thinking, I asked myself the question, when was the last time I was utterly amazed by God? It's hard to recall that. I mean, there's things I've been impressed with God. I've been grateful to God. But where I'm completely shocked and overwhelmed and amazed, I couldn't think of it. But as you go through the book of Acts, and even up to the point of where we've already gone through, the passages we've gone through, let me just read... So a couple different verses because this was normal for them. They lived in a state of being awed and amazed by God all the time. Acts chapter 2, verse 12, after the Holy Spirit comes, 
It says this. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? They were overwhelmed. Acts 9, verse 21, when Paul or Saul is transformed from being a persecutor of the church to preaching the gospel, it says this, and all who heard him were amazed. This is an enemy, and now he's a friend. Acts 10, 45, after God had poured out his gift of salvation and the work of the Holy Spirit on the Gentiles, it says this, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the, the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Amazed. We're supposed to be amazed. We're supposed to be amazed by God. We're like, well, that's not my problem. It's his problem. He hasn't done anything amazing lately. No, I think it's the other way around. When was the last time you prayed an amazing prayer? Not in your skill or your eloquence, but you prayed something that would require the answer to make you amazed. When I sat preparing this week, I was convicted. I haven't prayed that kind of prayer in a long time. It's probably because I haven't been, haven't been desperate enough. But I've been thinking, well, what kind of prayer do I need to pray for my life or for my city or for our church that if God actually answered it, I would be utterly and completely amazed by him breaking through? I haven't prayed that prayer in a long time, and I need to pray that. And what really got my attention this week is I was thinking about this next season we're coming into with Pray Seeming. We're heading into the month of March and praying for our city. Is I'm asking God, God, what is an amazing prayer for Simi Valley? What is an amazing prayer for my community? What if I asked for, what do I need to ask for that if, if you answered it, this city would never be the same? And it wouldn't just be Antioch Church that would be amazed. It would be the city of Simi Valley or Moore Park or Fillmore or Chatsworth or Thousand Oaks or Newberry Park or wherever you live. That, that would be absolutely amazing if that happened. When was the last time we prayed that kind of prayer? I'm hoping this year, by the way, I know every year more and more people will participate in Pray Seeming. It is four weeks. It is about an hour of your time a week to go on site to pray. And I am encouraging you strongly. I am convinced if we want to see God break through in our church and our city, it's not going to happen if we just wait. We have to pray. They constantly pray. That's why we read the stories that read. Prayer worked its way into their lifestyle. And so when we get to March, take the time to fast a meal and go and walk our city hall, or walk by a school, or walk your neighborhood, or look for people who are a different ethnicity than you, and pray for our city, because when it comes to April 2nd, I am anticipating that we are going to hear the voice of the Lord for our city. Because we're going to come back collectively in a prayer gathering that night, and we're going to say, God, what did you say to us? We're going to have microphones, and we're going to record the whole thing. Because I want to hear, God, what did you say when we were out there praying? What did you open our eyes to that we didn't see that you want to do that's amazing in our city? I want it to shape the way that we function as a church. I want it to change the focus of where we go for the next decade because God shows us something that we haven't seen yet that could be absolutely amazing for our city. That's what God wants to do. He wants us to pray these amazing prayers and be amazed when he answers. Second thing, look at verse 17 and 18, is that the impossible produces or impossible prayers produce testimony, a story. So look at verses 17 and 18 in the passage here. It says, Peter motioned after he comes in with his hand uh, for them to be quiet. And he described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he says, tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this. He said, and then he left for another place. And in the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter, you think? <laughs> Wait, he was just here and now he's gone. Wait a second, how does this happen? So what does Peter do? The first thing he does is he says, let me just tell you what happened. Now, they're on the other side. They're praying. They're praying. And now he's explaining to them the very thing that was transpiring. While they were praying, they're getting the other side, the bigger picture, the whole picture of what God was doing. What is that? That's his story. That's Peter's story. That's Peter's testimony. 
And you've heard me say this a million times and probably a lot over the last five, six weeks. You have to tell your story. Your story is your story. Your story is what God has done in you. And it isn't, we don't, we don't live in a, in a kind of in a setting where it's like, well, I have to compare my testimony to see if it's good enough to share. It's your story. And that's what's so important is that you just need to be able to share. This is what God has done in me. Remember we talked about the, the blind man who Jesus heals and immediately the religious leaders push in and they're like, how can this be? In fact, Jesus picked the wrong day of the week to heal. He's not supposed to heal on the Sabbath. He's got it all wrong. And the blind man says, hey, listen, all I know I was blind and now I can see. You can't argue with that. So I know Rita would tell you this. So I'm not going to put her on the spot, but God's touched her body and she's not dealing with cancer anymore. And she keeps telling people about that left and right. I love it. When I talk to her, she's like smiling. She goes, I just keep, keep telling people my story. That's the way it should be when God does something. Don't be quiet about it. Just let people know. Because one of the things that's more powerful than anything is people don't need you to preach at them. They don't need you to give them theology. They don't need you to thump them with the Bible. They just need to hear your story. Because remember, you are the representation of Jesus. And if they see what it is to know Jesus in flesh and blood in front of them, and the fact that you're human and you're broken, and you struggle with diseases or temptations, but God has broken through in your life, that's what the world needs to hear. But it's because so many times people will say, if God could do it in your life, then maybe you can do it in mine. That's what Peter was saying here. That's what he was explaining. That's what they were experiencing. And so for each one of us, we have that testimony or that story that we need to tell. And then the final thing that, I want to touch on, <clears throat> in just in a few moments, the worship team will come and join us for, for one last song, is that there's actually impossible prayers, believe it or not, produce victory. And it isn't always necessarily victory the way that we understand it or see it, but God always wins. He always wins. Now, when we're in the first four verses of chapter 12, did it feel like God was winning? Uh-uh. But this is, this is interesting. Look at, look at verse, we'll start actually verse 19 here. Down to verse 24. It says, Now after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. And now, now you get to verse 20. This almost seems out of place, but listen, listen how the story unfolds. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's food or the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put out his royal robes, or <clears throat> put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Think, well, that's pretty disgusting. Come on, really? What is that even thrown in there for? Those summary verses are really important. The guards that guarded Peter and the ruler that put him in prison hoping to kill him are no more. But what's the last part of there? But the word of God spread and multiplied. Think, oh, God took their lives. Well, God is just and God's going to do what God's going to do. But at this moment in the story, guess who's still alive? Peter, the gospel, the church, the kingdom of God. God's still advancing his purpose. God wins in the end, always. There's victory. And that has to be something that you and I get reminded of because in the midst of our circumstances, the last thing we think God can do is the impossible because we don't see evidence of it. 
we look at it in front of us and think, God, I don't see it. And so we become pessimists to God. And we don't think that he can do anything because we're stuck in verses 1 through 4. And we never get to the end of the chapter where God wins. And sometimes, and uh, probably not, let's say probably almost all the time, it always takes longer than we want it to. Right? God, can't you just do it now? Can't you just heal me now? Can't you just solve this problem now? And God says, no, but eventually I will. In this lifetime or the next, I win and you win. That's why Paul said, remember, Paul's such powerful words for the, for the believer. If you die, it's what? Gain. If you live, it's Christ. It's for him. But if you die, it's gain. You win. You win in death. You can't lose with God. God doesn't lose. There's always this victory, and that's why we pray for the impossible. So let me share this, this final story as a reminder. I might have told this story before, but it has a lot of significance in my life. So I'm going to show you a picture of a building. Building probably means absolutely nothing to you, but it means a, a lot to me. So this is a building. It's in Ventura, and uh, it's uh, a part of a church. It's currently called The River, The River Community, pastored by a great guy named Jim Duran. And uh, this building is uh, currently, it houses their offices and their children's ministry and some different things. Uh, it's right next to a church building on the, on the other side of a small parking lot. Um, when Kim and I were on staff at this particular church, it was called Horizon Foursquare Church, and a number of years ago in Ventura, and, and the, the backstory on this building is interesting, because um, for, for years, it sat vacant right next door to the church as the church was growing and needed more space, and so numerous times, uh, the, the leadership in the church would approach the owner of this building and would say, we want to buy your building, and the owner would say over and over and over again, I'm not selling to a church. There was something in him, he, he, was, he was hurt by the church, or he had a thing against God, and so he said, I will not sell to the church. So this is a businessman with a piece of property sitting there that were, they would offer fair market value, and he said, no, I don't want to sell it. So the church prayed and kept praying and kept asking over and over and over and over again. And finally, in one of these meetings, again, to say, hey, listen, we really want to buy your building, somehow he had not known this, but somebody says this in the meeting that the church, Horizon, was a four-square church. And he said, wait a second, you guys are a four-square church? He hadn't even probably driven by his property in years. He didn't care. He said, yeah, we're a four-square church. He goes, oh. And they said, why, does that mean something to you? And you're like, is this good or bad? <laughs> <laughs> but he said, no, he said, four-square. He said, when I was a kid, my mom went to Angela's Temple. And she was very impacted by the preaching and the prayer and the healing of Amy Sibley McPherson, the founder of Foursquare. And he says this, if you're a Foursquare church, I'll sell to you. Years and years and years and years of no, 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 no. But God was at work. And the beautiful thing about the church now is it's called the River Community. And it was back then, but even more so now. The River Community has great influence in the city of Ventura. This building is being utilized to impact a city because the church is, is partnering with other churches and doing some wonderful things. They have a thing called the city center, which is transitional housing that used to be, literally, it's a block down from the church. I remember that motel when I was in Ventura. It was the worst motel in the city. It was known for prostitution. In fact, there was a murder that occurred there actually that made nationwide news. It was a bad place. But through the generosity of churches and some business folks in the community who were Christians, they bought the hotel, the motel, they renovated, and now people find traction in life there. And Jim Durant is the, oversees that. And the coolest thing is the couple that lives there on site to oversee that, they're actually missionaries from Brazil that were four square missionaries for years. And God is using this. You think, what's so exciting about buildings? It's what God does in them and through them. 
Which, by the way, the coolest thing about our building I love is that, you know what? Saturday night is the only night something isn't happening in our building. Between us and Cielo Arbierto, the Spanish church, there's something happening every night. Our building is the East County site for foster care training every Thursday night. Our building's being used. You think, doing, I used to like, I don't get excited about buildings. But you know what? When God uses a building, he uses it for his glory. So you're thinking, wait a second. Is this all about buildings? You started the building, you're ending the building? No, it's not about building. It's about God at work, and God always wins. Because God will accomplish what we think is impossible. He makes it possible. So I'm going to ask the worship team if they would come and join me. And I want to pray in a moment. But I want us to, to prepare to be reminded of one of the reasons that helps us to pray for what is impossible. It's when we remember who we're praying to. One of the things I think I pray probably 75% of the Sundays that I come into this building is that we would encounter Jesus in such a way that we would not live in denial of the challenges we face, but that we would forget about our problems and let God take care of them. Because we'd have such an encounter with Jesus that everything that we think is so overwhelming in our lives would just fade and pale in comparison to who he is. That's what my prayer is. And we're going to go into a song called Great I Am, which really talks about the name that God gave himself in the Old Testament, I Am, which basically, in a nutshell, is that God is the ultimate. There is no one above him. There is no one greater than him. In fact, that's the very name that <laughs> when Moses says, who do I tell him? There, He said, say that I am sent you, and that would be enough. Because we have to be reminded that we pray to a God who is the creator of all things, the God who's created your body, the God is the God over disease, the God over lack, the God over debt, the God over sin, the God over eternity, the God over our lives. He can accomplish anything that he wants to do. And what I think we were talking with people in between services, one of the things that's crazy, I don't know why God does this, but God does this way. He could do anything he wants to do, but he chooses to do it through people like us. And he chooses the avenue and the mechanism and the means of prayer to accomplish it. I don't know why he does it that way. Ask him someday when you see him. It's like, God, you could just bypass the people. We always mess it up. And he says, no. When we pray, God breaks through. And so I'm going to pray in a moment that we're going to sing this song because I want us to be reminded God wants us to pray for the impossible. Not, not thinking, oh God, if this is going to really happen, let God worry about if it's going to happen and when it's going to happen. Our job is to pray for what's impossible in our lives to see God break through. And maybe the reason we haven't seen the impossible become possible is because we stopped praying impossible prayers. And God's saying it's time again. So you stand with me and let's pray and then we're going to sing this song and I want it to be a declaration of who God is and a reminder of his power in our life. Lord Jesus, we thank you that 2,000 years ago, you moved on a group of people to pray earnestly for Peter. And the result was, not only was Peter freed, but the gospel was spread, the church advanced, the kingdom extended, and you won. And today you win in our lives. So Lord, I pray that you would increase our courage, increase our faith to believe that you are a God that can do things that we would think are impossible. But Lord, for you, everything is possible. So, Lord, I pray that as we sing this song, reminded there would be nothing that is somehow off limits in our prayer life, that we, there's nothing that we wouldn't ask you for and believe for because you're a God that wants to do the impossible in our lives. So, Jesus, come and increase our faith. Come by your spirit and bring your power into our lives to strengthen and encourage us in your name, Lord.